Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning uh, once again to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. You can turn there with me if you have a copy of God's Word. We do have, uh, remind you, we have some Bibles available on the back table. If you don't have a copy, it will appear on the screen behind me. This is a long chapter, chapter 6, that we've been in for a couple weeks, a few weeks. And as you're turning there, I want to say this, and perhaps I've said this before, but uh, the task of preaching, which is one of my primary tasks week in and week out, one of the challenges of preaching is determining where to stop in a passage, determining how big of a bite we should take in order to chew on. Sometimes it's very obvious and easy that something just kind of fits real neatly in a package. And other weeks, it's very, very difficult. And this was one of those weeks where it was very, very difficult. And then you have those weeks where you actually choose a passage, and then you realize at the 11th hour that you've bitten off way more than you can chew. And indeed, that was this week as well. If you have a paper bulletin, you'll probably see, and if you saw the PDF, you'll probably see that I was planning to read and to preach through verse 71. But as I began to work on this passage, as I began to think about all that was going on, the pastoral prayer, the Yakima report, so many things, I decided I needed to stop. And so today is kind of a truncated sermon, much to the delight of our nursery workers. It's going to be a little bit briefer today than it normally would be. And this is kind of part one, point one, of what was going to be a two-point sermon that we'll jump into next week. And so that's kind of where we are. I'm going to read this morning from John chapter 6, verses 41 to 47. So shortened it quite a bit this morning. But before I read, I want to just jump back in, particularly since some of you haven't been here in recent weeks, to where we are in the story, in this account of the Gospel of John. We are still in chapter 6. We are still witnessing and learning about the rippling effects of Jesus' miracle on that hillside when he fed thousands and thousands of people. Far from being some random event that Jesus kind of just stumbled upon and decided to make bread out of just a few loaves, it had intentionality, right? And we sought to see that in John's account. This miracle exposed the disciples' lack of faith. It was, first of all, a test for them as Jesus was presenting them with an impossible task and wanting to see how they would react and what they would do. Would they turn to him? Would they try to fix it themselves? It's also exposed, and that's what we looked at last week, it's exposed the crowds, the masses' preoccupation with their bellies, right? With their stuff, with what they wanted Jesus to be, what kind of Messiah they wanted him to be, what kind of king they wanted him to be. And both those things, I hope, over the last couple weeks have been challenging for us and for our lives and for our ministry together. As I read this passage this morning, you're going to hear some of the things that Jesus has already stated. Talk of him being the bread of life and coming down from heaven. He reiterates these things in in such a way, and we're going to see this more next week, but Jesus returns to these things and reiterates them in a way to poke and to provoke and to prod. Not just for provoking's sake, but to deepen people's understanding of him and his mission 
and how he saves. I mean, Jesus says these things to these people. The Holy Spirit preserves these things for us here today because these are things that Jesus wants us to know about and he wants us to understand and wrestle with. And so that's what we're going to do this morning in these next few minutes is wrestle with these few verses. John chapter 6, verse 41 through 47. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. If you're able, John chapter 6, starting at verse 41 and stopping at verse 47. Listen as I read. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Well, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, just like last week, this passage and these verses that I just read to you are chocked full of rich theological truth. This morning, I'd like to distill these verses into just one profound statement, a statement that begins to answer, I think, this question. Why don't people believe? Right? How can something, or in this case, the case of Jesus, how can someone that seems so obvious to one person be so utterly confusing and dumbfounding to another person? Why don't people believe? Well, Jesus begins to answer it here in this passage, and it can be said this way, and here's the one profound statement. To know Jesus, the Father must know you. To know Jesus, the Father must know you. Not just know about you, but set His affection on you and yours, therefore, on Him. Let me explain what I mean. Let me explain what Jesus means as He speaks these words. As we jump back into this passage, we're still in the same day. We're in the same conversation, indeed, as we were last week. Following this crazy, amazing miracle, Jesus has, has dropped some doozies on this crowd. And, and they're kind of reeling at some of the things that he has said. But Jesus has sought to shift their focus from the literal bread that filled their bellies to the fact that he is the bread that they need. And furthermore, as he has stated here, he's not from around here. (laughs) Ultimately, he's from heaven. I don't know if you noticed, but up until this point throughout the chapter, 
It's been the crowd. That's how John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, has referred to these people, the masses. It's been the crowd, the crowd, the crowd. Now you notice who it is. Same group of people, but he puts a finer point on it. It's the Jews. It's the Jews. John has switched back to the language, back to that group that fussed about Jesus healing on the Sabbath and wanted to kill Him as a result of it. These are the people that are opposing Jesus. Jesus has already stirred them up. And these are people who would have known the Old Testament Scriptures. And this whole scene of Jesus feeding on the hillside has been riddled with Old Testament illusion. These people, the Jews, the crowds, they've even brought it up to Jesus, right? They brought it up when someone stated in verse 31 the story about their fathers being fed by manna in the wilderness. And so John, for us the reader, John the Apostle, introduces a more subtle tie-in with the word that begins right at the outset of verse 41. The word grumbling. Well, now there's a word with some Old Testament baggage. The word grumbling. Exodus 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. In fact, it's repeated over and over again in that little section of Exodus 16. The Lord heard their grumbling. And so what did the Lord do in response to their grumbling? He gave them manna to eat. Now John tells us here in verse 41 that the Jews are grumbling because ironically, (laughs) the bread that they need is standing right in front of them. Not because they haven't been given bread, but because it's not computing in their minds that the bread that they've been given is right there in Jesus. And so they grumble, just like their forefathers grumbled. And they say, Jesus, we we remember your mom and dad. Maybe even some of them remember Jesus as a teenage boy running around. And, and now you're saying that you're from heaven? What in the world are you talking about? Doesn't matter what we've just witnessed. It doesn't matter what we've just been a part of. We refuse to think any other way. That's what these Jews are essentially doing. And this begins to get us to this point, to this statement, to know Jesus, the Father, must know you. You see, Jesus' answer to their grumbling, ironically, God has heard them once again because Jesus is standing there. The answer to their grumbling is a declaration of their reality and of our reality. And it's verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He'll put a little sharper edge on it, a little finer point on it next week in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. And then this phrase, it's a crazy phrase, the flesh is no help at all. Jesus is explaining, Jesus is declaring why the Jews don't believe in him. 
It's not because they don't have enough information. It's not because they don't have enough evidence. It's not because of any lack or deficiency in Jesus Himself. Surely Jesus has done enough. Surely He has given them enough. And yet remember, He fed thousands of people on the hillside. And what did they ask for? Another sign. Show us something else if you are who you say you are. It brings to mind the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. That parable of the rich man and and Lazarus. Remember that? Remember the rich man who was in torment? Was pleading for someone to go to his family. The rich man Lazarus died. Lazarus was taken up by the mercy of God. And the rich man was in torment and he begged for someone to go to his family to warn them. And he asked Father Abraham, could you send someone? And what did Father Abraham say? In Luke 16.31, he says this, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, friends, left to ourselves, this is our reality. And you may argue, or others may argue, if God would do this, blank. If God would do just this, blank. Then, then, then I would believe. That would be enough. But it's not true. The human heart will always look for ways to be offended and deny the truth. The human heart will make excuses to stay in unbelief. Paul told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, dead in our sin, spiritually blind as a result, we must be made alive. We must be given new eyes. The Father must draw us. The Father must know us. He must act. And thanks be to God, He does. In verse 45, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah speaks of the day when the Messiah will come and with Him peace and the children will be taught by the Lord. And Jesus says, this day has now come. The Father is drawing people to Himself through me. And bound up in that Greek word, draw, in verse 44, is this idea of resistance. Right, The word is used elsewhere to describe fishermen drawing in nets full of fish into their boat or onto the shore. In fact, the same word is used, the same Greek word is used in Acts 16.19 to describe Paul and Silas being dragged into prison. Why do I bring that up? Not because I want to put in your minds the image of God like handcuffing you and, and dragging you, kicking and screaming to Himself. That's not how He works. One commentator says this. I think it's helpful. He says, when he, that is, when the father compels belief, it is not the savage constraint of a rapist, but by the wonderful wooing of a lover. It is by insight, a teaching, an illumination implanted within the individual. 
But being rebels at heart, we do resist. But God's gracious drawing overcomes us. This, as we talked about briefly last week, is a doctrine that we call God's irresistible grace. His effectual calling of those who are His. Listen to our confessional documents. Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's one of the teaching tools that comes out of the Presbyterian tradition. Very helpful. I'm going to read a couple of questions and answers. It says, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? And the answer is this. We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual or effective application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. Well, then how does the Holy Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The answer to that is the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. And then finally, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. To know Jesus, the Father must know you. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He must, by His Spirit, choose you. He must bring you to life. He must enable you to embrace His Son. This is the truth of Jesus' words here. So the question is, I mean, that's kind of heady doctrine. The question is, well, what does it mean for us? Like, so what to know that kind of behind-the-curtain, behind-the-scenes work? Well, I first bring up the quote I gave last week where Martin Luther said to Erasmus that your God is way too human. Right? This just reminds us that we worship this morning, that we serve all of our days a big God. A God beyond our control, beyond our comprehension. But let me apply it a little bit further. First, to the non-Christian. Maybe there are non-Christians in this room this morning. Maybe there's some non-Christians listening online. This doctrine of effectual calling, of irresistible grace, of just that statement by Jesus that no one comes to Him unless the Father draws Him, that statement ought not be a reason for despair. It, It ought not be. As if you can't come to the Father. That's not true. If you're hearing these words, if you're here this morning, it is because God is at work now. He is wooing you. He is calling you. He is already drawing you to Himself. And for you non-Christian, for you unbeliever, there is no amount of evidence that's going to put you over the edge. There's nothing that I'm going to say that's going to seal the deal for you. In reality, there's something behind your unbelief 
that you need to fight against and that you need to let go of. You can show that you are Jesus' own. You can show that the Father has drawn you today by coming to Him. But then for the Christian, I know most of you in this room, not all, but most, how does this apply to us? So what for us to know this doctrine? Well, two things that I thought about. There are probably more applications we could talk about. But first of all, this doctrine must work in us humility. It must work in us humility. We sing a wonderful hymn. We're not singing it this morning. We've sung it recently. It's a hymn that I love. It's called, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. The original title is actually, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. But that's an old English word, awful. We use it in a very different way. But how sweet and awesome is the place. I want to read some of the verses to you. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts... And all of our songs join to admire the feast. Each of us cry with thankful tongues. Why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and, and would rather starve than come, t'was the same love that spread the feast and sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. You see, this is a doctrine that makes us declare, but for the grace of God, there go I. There is no room for pride or accomplishment or discovery for us. It's all grace. It's all sovereign mercy. But then there's another application, I think, for the Christian. As I thought about this in my own life, this doctrine gives incredible freedom and hope. It gives incredible freedom and hope for us. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the heart of unbelief must be cracked by God. It must be. No argument, no equation, nor anything within your power, within my power, can do it. And so, that loved one, that co-worker, they may be beyond your reach, but they are not beyond God's reach. And so the pressure is off. You can't convince them. It's not your job to convince them. You can be faithfully present and you can and should speak life into their life. And you ought to pray. But ultimately, it is God who does the work. That's so freeing to me. It doesn't absolve me from responsibility, but it firmly places the results in the sovereign hand of God. And let me just add one little thing. One little addendum to this application, and that is the idea of patience, right? God doesn't work on our timetable. Forty years, His people wandered in the desert. And so I think this is also a call and a reminder to be patient. 
The Lord doesn't need to, but He delights to use the means of His people to draw those who are not yet His to Himself. But it's not up to us. It's up to Him. To know Jesus, the Father must know you. So brothers and sisters, Church of Jesus Christ, worship the God of sovereign mercy. Rest in the freedom, in the wisdom of His effectual call. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for these words of our Savior. They are hard words in one respect, and yet in another respect, they are wonderful words. Wonderfully freeing words. Father, we sit here this morning, those of us who know and love You, and we indeed cry with Isaac Watts, why have we been made guests? With hearts of gratitude, we worship You. And with hearts of longing, we ask that for those in our lives, those neighbors, those co-workers, those family members that we love who are far from You, would You be pleased to draw them to Yourself, to overcome their resistance, and to show them the glory of who You are. Oh Father, we thank You for these truths. Impress them upon our hearts. Use them for Your glory in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.